You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. The following interview is from the Newscape archives and was recorded at FMR 101.3 FM in Cape Town. I don't know how my next guest has managed to escape Newscape for the last year. He's one of this country's best-known and well-loved businessmen and also speakers and commentators. His recent piece called Redirecting Julius caught my eye recently. It's Clem Sunter. Clem, it's difficult to redirect an entity that is seemingly on its own track and the signals on those tracks just don't seem to be working. You can't redirect this fellow. What do you think? Well, my view is that, you know, he hasn't really been exposed to outside groups he, he's you know his w- w- when he was in that case um, over over the um, hate speech and you know kill the boar he, he actually said that he joined the ANC when he was 11 and uh, I think he's kind of lived in that hothouse atmosphere of the ANC since then and so really what I was trying to say in the article is that if one exposes him to uh, business uh, possibly sends him on a leadership course at one of our business schools, and and yeah, um, just gives him a whole tranche of different ideas. It might well have a, a, a profound effect on him in terms of changing his opinion about how we should go into our future. But that's not, of course, going to happen. And I think what's very clever about Julius Malema is the fact that he is tapping into the populist need. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that need to hear this sort of thing, want to hear this sort of thing, because they don't have basic services that have been promised over the last decade or even decade and a half. And he's tapping into that. What disturbs me somewhat about him is that the foundation of his thoughts are not well thought out. And also that he he sort of changes his mind. I mean, the recent comments about Tabo and Becky really startled me. Yeah, but that's exactly the point, is that he does change his mind. And, you know, I, the, the point is is that all the response to him has been negative, which is, you know, your, your ideas are totally impossible, which I agree with. I think nationalization with or without compensation is, is a dead end. And I also think land grabs could precipitate civil war. But what nobody has done is try and put some positive thoughts on the table, which might um, inspire uh, young people who are unemployed in this country as much as, as what he's saying, because he's playing the politics of jealousy, basically saying you know, we're actually going to take away what is rightfully ours from people who stole it, you know, back in in the bad old days. What what I said in the article is that one really has to substitute the thoughts of Steve Biko, who basically said, you know, handouts do not improve your self-esteem, doing it for yourself does. And so therefore, we've got to try and empower young people with good education to do their own thing. We've got to um, obviously give them the entrepreneurial space and freedom to do their own thing, and we've got to give them confidence uh, by giving them icons, other icons uh, who've done well. And I quote Sia Balela Azusa, who's been the most incredible success in the United States and who now has a minor planet named after him by NASA uh, when he was 17 years old uh, from, from, from Antarctica. It's those kind of things which you've got to offer young people to, to give them an equally inspirational message instead of just sort of playing, 
you know, the defensive bat against the sort of bounces that uh, Julius is delivering. <laughs> I asked one of the country's editors of uh, one of the country's top newspapers last week, where do you see Julius in 20 years' time? I mean, is he playing the populist card now and will he moderate his thoughts in 20 years when he's at ministerial level or at senior level in the ANC? And he didn't really know. Could you answer that question for me? Well, that's, that's why, uh, Lindsay, I, I, I mentioned this point that I, I, I think that with good arguments and good exposure to alternative views, he will uh, change his views. Um, so I don't, I don't think that he's necessarily the, the sort of fixed radical that, 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 that other people make out. I mean, I do think that very, very big things have to be done to turn our economy into an inclusive, participative one and bring the youth unemployment down from its huge level of 50% to say 10%. But, you know, I, I, I personally believe that if you can sit down with some of the, the people outside the ANC, who, who then show goodwill by not sort of denouncing him, but actually uh, engaging him and saying, you know, let's look at some alternatives which try and achieve what you're trying to achieve, um, but, and, and which have a, a, a greater probability of success. I don't think he's going to necessarily just turn those ideas away. You're a passionate South African. I'm also an, a passionate adopted South African and I see unemployment officially at 25.3% according to ADCORP, the JSE listed entity, but unofficially at around about 36-37%. This country, in my opinion, as an economic broadcaster, cannot go forward with those sorts of statistics. Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah, I totally agree. And, 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 and one of the things one has to realise is that youth unemployment is not a thing of South Africa. It's a thing of the UK, where youth unemployment has put it around 25%. It's Spain, certainly, almost uh, rivals uh, South Africa. In, in the US, you know, the, the general unemployment rate is, is, is 9%, which is very high historically for the US. We're living in a tough world economy at the moment. I call it the hard time scenario. It's never been tougher since the 1930s. And, and what's more, the whole nature of work has changed, where large companies are no longer permanently employing large numbers of people. They tend to restrict their employment to very critical uh, people in terms of what they produce and then subcontract everything else out to smaller businesses. So the whole nature of work has changed in the world, and, and it means that You've got to create entrepreneurs because it's going to be small businesses that actually, um, you know, uh, employ people rather than the huge large businesses. And as, as a, I, I kind of say, if Zuma had said, let's create one million new businesses by 2020, it would have been for me a much more inspirational call than let's create five million jobs because I simply don't know where those jobs are going to come from unless you create the one million new businesses. It's very easy to create five million jobs. You get two and a half million people in the morning to dig a trench and then two and a half million <laughs> in the afternoon to fill them in. I mean, that's very, very easy. But of course, it drains resources, you, as you say. But how do we create the middle class that creates jobs? And the middle class, of course, creates small and medium enterprises. And it goes on from there. I just don't know how to do it. Well, let's get back to the, the, the digging the holes and, and filling them in. Just, just that, that needs taxpayer money. And, and the point about um, 
you know, all jobs in the public service is they are paid by the taxes paid by individuals and by companies. And if you don't actually have that, that growth in the uh, private sector, you simply won't be able to, to pay for the, the public works program. So I still rest my case that you've got to create those one million new businesses, whether it, they directly uh, employ people or whether they're actually contributing taxes which employ people in the public sector. We've got to focus on creating a friendly entrepreneurial space Together with the kind of support systems, uh, which, uh, which, 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 in terms of finance and in terms of mentorship, so that actually we get a genuine entrepreneurial class in South Africa. And I'd like to give you one example. Please do. The Zameli project in Anglo. I mean, we started out in the mid '80s, subcontracting stuff to to our um, to small business from our mines, and then in the '90s we we formed a venture capital fund to invest in these small businesses so that they could expand. And secondly, we put young Anglo people on the boards of these companies. And last year, and it includes obviously all the business that we've done under, under sort of the B scorecard, we did 24.6 billion rands worth of business with um, basically um, empowered businesses. Now that is a huge figure, and it's because we've changed from a social responsibility program to actually seeing that if you support uh, genuine entrepreneurs, you actually get a fantastic deal out of them. So I want to switch from regarding, you know, their small business as a, as a social responsibility exercise to actually saying to big companies around South Africa, wise up and change your supply chain so that you actually use focused small business to provide goods and services more effectively at a cheaper price than you can do for yourself. Broad-based black economic empowerment has changed over the years since the rather odious first deals were done. I've written articles about it. I've been asked to write articles about it, and I'm quite impressed with the way it has changed. But uh, from what you're saying, it's not doing enough. No, it's not. I mean, you know, we get back to this sort of dreadful unemployment but, but, uh, figure, and, and, and so we're way, way behind uh, what we should be doing. But... What we should be, what, what, what we need to do is to take the examples that are working in this country and then replicate them. And that's why I chirp about Sameli from the rooftops, because I just say, if we can do it in the mining industry, why don't you do it as banks? Why don't you do it as insurance companies? And I have to say, I'm very pleased that the Competition Commission put pressure on Walmart to put aside 100 million rand uh, to, to invest in small businesses that can supply them. And again, it's going to be done as a social responsibility uh, exercise to begin with, but I do hope that it switches into being part of their business model because that's the way to go. You look in uh, Brazil and, and other countries, virtually all the additional employment is coming out of the area of small business and entrepreneurs. You were in the gold industry with Anglo-American, their gold division, and I look at the price of gold now at $1,500 an ounce. I don't know what it was when you left that industry. It was probably about 300 400 exactly. yeah. something like that. And I look at the – we've been blessed with mineral wealth, and yet I don't think we've taken full advantage of it, and it makes me slightly angry. Um, other countries have taken more advantage of what they've been and given and sort of leveraged off that gift. We haven't done it, have we, to our full satisfaction? Well, we, 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 you know, we, we did, and it is a geological fact, unfortunately, that 
all the really big gold fields have been found. I mean, we threw a lot of money, something like a billion rand in exploration during the mid to late 80s and 90s, trying to find another major gold field, and it simply isn't there. All we found were the gaps, like the Potterstrom Gap and Borterville Gap. So I'm afraid to say, you know, you can never say never with, with exploration. We might find another major gold deposit, um, but I'm not sure. And, and similarly with diamonds. But certainly we are still huge in platinum and manganese and chrome and lots of high-grade iron ore and lots of coal. But what's really, I think, restricting foreign direct investment in South Africa and also local investment is policy uncertainty. When you have, you know, this debate around nationalization, um, people are, you know, are anxious and, and they simply aren't going to invest the kind of money that they would if they knew that the rules of the game, which were reasonable rules of the game, were fixed. So I'm afraid to say this whole debate, which, you know, is around um, the points that Julius Malema has made, it has to be resolved because, you know, we're not going to make um, as much um, advantage of our resources until we have policy certainty. This week, the president was at the Kasatu meeting in Johannesburg and he sat next to Zwilinzi Mavavi and Kasatu came out and it was headline news all over the newspapers and all over the websites saying that Kasatu supports the nationalisation of mines and also the nationalisation of banks. But Mr Zuma doesn't come out. We, he said, look, we don't support land grabs, but he wouldn't go that far and say, no, we're absolutely against, as the ANC, as the ruling party, as the leaders of this country, we're absolutely against nationalisation. He didn't say that. He, he's almost as though he wants to be uh, the friend of everybody. And again, that makes me slightly disturbed for the future. Well, I, I'm interested that there's just sort of huge uncertainty around it because that was the first time that I'd heard that Kasatu was really behind the idea of nationalization because, you know, they haven't actually sort of, you know, given their view um, and, and certainly the National Union of Mine Workers hasn't, hasn't given its view. And I was very interested with Blade and Zamandi at the same Congress saying that he felt nationalization was really just to allow some of the the B companies to get out of trouble because they've taken out huge lands on their um, you know on, on 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 their mining acquisitions. So I actually just think that within the labour movement and SACP, there's there's very mixed views around uh, nationalisation at the moment because in a sense, you know, the union's got to realise that if it has to negotiate with government over wages, it might end up with a much tougher deal than negotiating with private employers. Clem, we like to speak to our interviewees about what they're up to at the moment, apart from their views on what's going on in the world, particularly in South Africa. What are you up to at the moment? Well, I'm, I'm you know, I've had this fantastic run with this um, lady, Chantal Ilbury, with whom I've written three books, Mind of a Fox, Games, Foxes Play, and Socrates and the Fox, where we essentially say that rather than look at the future in, in uh, the way that you just have a vision, a mission statement, you align everybody, you have key performance indicators, which is fine because ever since Peter Drucker wrote Management by Objectives, we've, we've had that sort of approach of having objectives in companies. But you do need the foxy approach where all the time you are interrogating that vision and your uh, business model against what is changing in the external environment. And 
just like the animal, you're checking it out all the time for the changes to see how you should adapt your strategy. And it's the speed and quality of your response to those changes which uh, determine whether you're going to survive. And whilst our message during the early part of the century was really considered by many companies to be superfluous because they had a perfectly reasonable strategy, I think that the recession has changed their attitude completely. And what they realize now is that you have to road test your strategy against uh, different uh, business scenarios or economic scenarios to see whether you can maintain your viability. And what I keep saying to people is that we're in a hard time scenario, but it doesn't mean you can't make money because those companies that have ingenious strategies still grow their company, grow their earnings. The difference between now and the 1990s is that Everybody did it in the 1990s, mediocre and excellent alike. Whereas now, you've got to have that ingenuity. And if, you, if you're going to get that ingenuity, you've got to keep an eye on what's actually happening around you. Yes, you have as a fund manager, for example, with valuations on the JSC Securities Exchange uh, seemingly very elevated. You've got to be a stock picker. So I suppose it's the same when it comes to running a business. How is South Africa doing? We're a member of the BRIC countries, for goodness sake, Brazil, Russia, India, China. I think we're actually rather lucky to be in there, and I'm not quite sure why we are. Maybe it's because we are a sort of foundation for expansion for the other BRICs into the rest of Africa, whatever it is. Should we be there? Do we deserve it? Can we justify it? Yeah, I'm I'm very happy uh, to be there because um, I think that the the, the actual guy who... um, um, founded the whole BRICS concept in um, Goldman Sachs would have preferred uh, Korea to to be a, to be the next member uh, besides Brazil, Russia, India, and China. But I think that it was quite right that those countries chose us because yes, Korea has been a great success, but uh, South Africa is the leading economy in Africa, and for me that is a more momentous sort of global event. Than, um, than, than being Korea surrounded by China and Japan. So I think we were quite rightly chosen, just as Brazil is seen as the future of South America. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what the leverage is going to be out of this, but for heaven's sake, what I want to say to the, to the government uh, here is that there is no example of an economy that's grown at more than 7% per annum for more than 10 years that hasn't been outward looking. So if you want to be a true brick (laughs) in being a member of the brick, you're going to have to be outward looking, which means you've got to play by the global rules of the game. You can't construct policies that are going to deter foreign investors. Do you engage with government? And when I say government, let's not talk about government now. Let's talk about the person that we started this conversation with, Julius Malema, the president of the NC Youth League. Can you pick up the phone to him? I've tried to pick up the phone to Floyd Shivambu, and he's sort of put me down. But can you pick up the phone to Julius Malema and say, Julius, let's go and have a cup of tea and let me give you some advice or let me give you some of my thoughts. Are they that accessible? Well, um, Lindsay, I mean, I haven't actually... Uh, done that yes, but now that you've raised it with me, I think I'll try it out and and see what happens. Because um, you know, I have done obviously work with some ministries, um, you know, in terms of helping them with scenarios, and certainly quite a few of um, the ideas that I put forward on small business have been, you know, I know have been received pretty uh, well in 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 government ranks. But 
No, I probably haven't, you know, had that level of interaction which 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 I should have had. Um, and I think, but that I think applies to business leadership essay. It applies to Boozer. I think that you know, essentially, uh, it's now time for business to to rise above the parapet. And and we should have a kind of Cadessa three, I think, where the first two Cadessas were around changing you know, our country into a political democracy, we probably need a Cadessa three now to change into uh, ourselves into an economic democracy. And, you know, I, I should probably be doing more to engage people like Julius Malema to get this show on the road. Yeah, I think it's almost like the grandfather sort of grandson uh, <laughs> a family relationship. And I think it's your duty to do it and his duty to listen. Clem, where can we follow your work? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I write a weekly column for News 24, which was where that I wrote that article uh, on, on uh, Julius uh, Malema. And I'm also writing this week on the kind of agenda that I'd like to see for a, for, for, for a Cadessa 3. So, you know, I write, you know, the weekly column on the, on the website. And then I have my own website my, uh, with, with Chantel, which is uh, mindofafox.com. But I'd like to come back one to one point, Lindsay, which you made as, a, as an investment advisor. Yes. If you're so right about we've moved away from stock indexes to stock picking because if we are in a hard time scenario for the next five years, which is our favorite scenario, you've, you've got to pick the companies which are, which, are, which are going to be winners in that five year because if you just buy indices, you're, you're averaging out between winners and losers. And that applies as much to companies as it does to currencies. And I quote one fact, that in March 2000, the Standard & Poor's 500 index in the U.S. was 1,500. Well, right today on you know, Bloomberg, it's 1,300 or just below. So if you, if you average out, you've lost money in the U.S., not in real terms, in nominal terms over the last 10 years. And I reckon if you just do the same over the next 10 years, you could lose out. So you have to pick stocks and currencies. Clem, good luck with your ovations towards Julius Malema. Thanks very much for your time. That's Clem Sunter. Go to www.mindofafox.com. That podcast was proudly brought to you in association with sharenet.co.za. Visit strictlybusinesspodcast.com and subscribe to receive exclusive content straight to your inbox.